Well, we are continuing this day with today with our study through Psalm 119. <coughs> this is a psalm that was written by a believer who was living in a culture that was hostile to his faith. And as he deals with those temptations and pressures around him, he regularly goes to the Lord for help. And he also recognizes that his most important weapon, his most important tool in this struggle was the scriptures, the word of God. So virtually every prayer that shows up in this psalm is in the context of better knowing and living out the scriptures, especially in the context of particular circumstances. So as a result, we learn much about the value and the importance of the scriptures as we work through this psalm. The psalmist made it very clear from the beginning that it was those who walked in the law of the Lord who would have a life that was blessed, a life that was truly happy. He's told us that if we have any hope of keeping our way pure in this world, we have to keep it according to his word. He's told us that when you live in a culture that's hostile to your faith, then the testimonies of God must be your delight. Those testimonies must be our counselor. And he's also told us that we saw last week that there is a time to take your discouragement and your grief to the Lord in prayer. When the Lord convicts us of sin in our lives, there's going to be sorrow. There's going to be grief about that. And as Jesus said, those who mourn will be comforted. I think it's exactly what he was talking about here. And then when we're deeply discouraged about what's going on in the culture, we take that lament to the Lord in prayer as well and trust him to strengthen us in the midst of that through his word. So today we're looking at the fifth stanza of the psalm. It's based on the Hebrew letter Hey. This is verses 33 to 40. And the theme of this stanza is the need for spiritual growth. No matter what the condition of the culture is, Christians always have the need for spiritual growth. I mean, it's especially important when the culture around is intentionally seeking to direct us the opposite way, but we're always seeking to grow closer to the Lord. And the prayers in these verses are directed to that end. So, read for you verse 33 to 40. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. <clears throat> Establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. Turn away my reproach, which I dread, for your ordinance is good. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me through your righteousness. We're going to look at these verses under three headings. First, in verses 33 to 35, we have prayers that the Lord would give us insight into his word and help us to live out what it says. Second, in verses 36 and 37, we see prayers asking God for a willing heart and for eyes that will turn away from what is evil and instead pursue what is godly and good. And then third, in verses 38 to 40, we have prayers that ask the Lord to help us to stand firm in the faith and actively pursue righteousness in our life. So, in our first main point, we see that as we pray for spiritual growth, we should pray that the Lord will make his word clear, make his word clear and enable us to please him 
by walking in his ways. <clears throat> there are lots of things that we pray about, lots of things. We pray for health concerns. We pray for financial needs. We pray about making wise decisions. We pray for people that we know are not Christians. We pray for people who we know are going through hard times. We pray for our church. We pray for our nation. We pray for the world in general. We pray for many different things, and that's really good. But how often do we pray for our own spiritual growth? And if we do pray for our own spiritual growth, where do we start? Well, these verses really will make an excellent guide on how to pray for your own spiritual growth and for the growth of others as well. So let's look first at uh, verse 33 and 34. It says, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. So from these verses, uh, we can say that with childlike dependence on the Lord, regularly ask him to teach you and enable you to understand his statutes because they are vital to your life. One thing to take note of in these prayers is that these are prayers from a person whose life has already been changed by the Lord. In other words, this is a, this is a Christian. This is someone who has faith in the Christ, has recognized his need for Christ, has put his faith in the Christ who would forgive him and grant him righteousness and make him a child of God. So this is the prayer of a Christian. They're not prayers for salvation. So the psalmist, but the, and the psalmist is very much aware of the need to know and apply the scriptures. He knows that the Lord is the one who can help him. So he comes really, what I've described here is like a childlike dependence to the Lord. He's saying, teach me the way of your statutes. Give me understanding. Make me even walk in the path of these commandments. In verse 33, he approaches God as Jehovah or as Yahweh, which is a reminder that God is the self-existing, sovereign, covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. Brian Borgman uh, refers to a phrase that George Zimmick used when he tells us that he uses God, this is a quote on your outline, he uses God's covenant name Yahweh and is asking for transcendent tutoring. He's asking for transcendent tutoring. I love that phrase, that idea. We don't need instruction in the way of sin. We know how to do that. But every one of us needs personal instruction on the way of God's statutes. And who better to teach us than the one who inspired his word to be written? Who better to teach us than the one who has brought us into a covenant relationship with him by his grace who better to teach us than the one who has set his love on us from the foundation of the world and who better to teach us than the christ who is our great prophet and teacher lord truly is our transcendent tutor verse 33 the lord asked to be taught the way of your statutes so it's not just what the statutes say but it's the way they apply in our lives for example thinking through a few of the Ten Commandments. It's the Lord who enables us to see when, when, when his commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. It's the Lord who helps us to see how that affects our priorities in life. What is the way that's applied? It is the Lord who enables us to see the commandment, keep the Sabbath day holy. 
helps us understand how to keep the Lord's Day, but also helps us to understand how the Lord's Day really helps us to structure the whole week around that. It's the Lord who enables us to see that do not bear false witness has impact on every aspect of our speech. We need the Lord to teach us the way of his statutes. The psalmist follows that up with a request that the Lord give him understanding, which is very similar to what we just talked about. It's not enough just to know what the scriptures say, but we need to know what they mean. And so it's the understanding of what they mean and how they apply that enables us to actually observe his law in our life. And that causes us to have a heart commitment to the Lord, which goes beyond just an outward uh, appearance. We also have to realize that this is not just a one-time prayer. We have need to pray this on a regular basis. Verse 33, the psalmist says, As the Lord teaches him, he will observe his statutes to the end of his life. That's a reminder we're going to need help every day, every week, every month, every year for the rest of your life. All the way to the end, we're going to need help. We will never get to the place that we need no further instruction. We will never get to the place that we have a full understanding and don't need any more. There is always a need to continue to grow and to continue to apply what we have learned to our life. Well, Psalmist then follows up these requests from 34 and, uh, 33 and 34 with this request in verse 35. He says, make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Just a great prayer. It's a prayer made out of the recognition of weakness. Make me walk this way. So here we see that out of a desire to please the Lord, to humbly admit your inability to consistently walk in the path of his commandments and implore him for help. Implore him for help. You can see from these requests that the psalmist has a genuine desire to please the Lord with his life. He wants to be taught by the Lord. He wants to understand what these words mean and what these commandments mean. But there's also recognition that he does not always do the things that he knows. He does not always do the things that he already has understanding of. In verse 33, he says he will observe these statutes to the end of his life. Verse 34, he says he will keep the law of God with his heart. So he has the desire to do that, to go that direction. But in recognition of his inconsistency, he then says, make me walk. Make me do this, to walk this direction in the path of your commandments. He knows there's weakness in his life. He knows he has a history of putting the commandments off to the side so that he can kind of do what he wants to do. The Apostle Paul is one who probably spoke more honestly of this maybe than anyone else, at least in the scriptures. I'm going to read an excerpt from Romans 7 <clears throat> where Paul's talking about this. He says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very evil, the thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle or the law that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. 
for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Then he says, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Paul is very honest with his struggles with sin. God has given him a desire to honor the Lord, to be faithful, to turn away from sin, and he's so grateful for that. But at the same time, sin is always there, pushing and pulling and trying to get him off track. And he knows that. He feels that. Well, that's the same struggle, I think, that's going on here in Psalm 119. It's the same idea. The struggle is real. But God's help in the struggle is also real. We can pray for God to make us walk in the path and know that he will work in us to that end. It's important to note as well that this prayer is not just being prayed out of a sense of obligation, out of a sense of duty. I mean, that's there. We have the duty before God to obey his commandments for sure. But because of the work of his spirit in our hearts, it's a delightful duty. It's something we want to do. We have a glorious Savior. We have a glorious Lord. We have the Word of God is, well, the words that we have used to describe it, even this morning, are infallible, sufficient, authoritative, trustworthy. There is no book in the world that can, that can be described in that same way. So we want to please our Lord who has saved us and granted us this Word. So a big part of praying for spiritual growth is admitting our inability to consistently walk in the path of his commandments and imploring him to continue to help us do that. Well, in the second section, we see that as we pray for spiritual growth, we pray that the Lord will grant us a willing heart to turn our eyes from focusing on what is morally vain and focus on his ways instead. Verse 36 and 37 are very similar to the early verse, earlier verses in this stanza, but they bring in a different challenge. It's the challenge of what is offered to us in the culture that threatens to draw us in and destroy our faith. And if we're going to grow in our faith, we are going to have to have the desire and the discernment to resist the things that are there that can try to lure us in and end up causing major problems in our faith. Verse 36 says this, Incline my heart to your testimonies, not to dishonest gain. Incline my heart. So from this verse, we see that we must daily ask the Lord to turn our heart toward his testimonies and away from the deceitful lust of the world. So in the same ways, and, or in some ways, the, the, the psalmist's request in verse 36 seems to be virtually the same as what he says here in verse 35. Verse 35, he says, make me walk in the path of your commandments. Here in verse 36, he follows that up by saying, incline my, incline my heart uh, to your testimonies. Both prayers indicate that there's a recognition for help and that we sometimes struggle. But verse 36 very directly makes it a hard issue. It's alarming when we can see ourselves going after things that we know are wrong. 
The specific situation described in the New American Standard there in verse 36 uh, talks about, incline, uh, it says, incline my heart to your testimonies, not to dishonest gain. Uh, other versions describe that as being not to covetousness, which probably communicates better to us. It's the idea of wanting what you know does not rightfully belong to you. That's covetousness. That's going after dishonest gain. This is a big deal. We actually see people falling to this multiple times in the scriptures. Let me give you a few examples. Balaam was a prophet who let his desire for wealth induce him to pronounce a curse on the people of Israel. David. David was enticed to commit adultery with another man's wife, Uriah's wife, and then follow that up by arranging his murder. Achan took what God said should not be taken after the victory God gave them over Jericho. And as a result, he and his whole family suffered the consequences. Judas, the disciple of Jesus Christ, was enticed to betray him by money, dishonest gain, covetousness. Covetousness is a major problem that every one of us has to deal with. Matter of fact, and I was reading those passage from Romans 7 earlier, and Paul actually focuses in on the law that says you shall not covet. And he said, that's the one that really got me. That's the one that showed me how sinful I was. I, no matter what I could do, I could not get away from that. We all have to deal with those strong temptations of desiring things that are not rightfully ours. In Ephesians 4.22, Paul calls them lust of deceit. I've always thought that was a very helpful and descriptive phrase because we lust or strongly desire something because we think it's something we really need. We think it's something that will make us really happy. But in reality, it's a lust of deceit. They promise what they can never deliver. We are deceived into thinking that that particular sinful desire will really be helpful to us. But the reality is that it's Satan working to destroy our faith and ultimately even to destroy our life. This is another one of those prayers that we really need to pray regularly. Incline my heart to your testimony. I think of an incline, I think of a slide. Cause my heart to kind of go this direction. Incline my heart toward your testimonies, not the other way, not toward covetousness. Well, in a similar vein, we see this prayer in verse 37. Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. So we see here that we must daily ask the Lord to enable us to turn our eyes away from fixating on temptations of the world, which are dangerous and empty. So verse 36 addresses what our heart is inclined toward. Verse 37 addresses what our eyes see. So guarding what we look at with our eyes is a great way, a great help of guarding our heart. You know, this has always been Satan's way of enticing us to sin through the eyes. 
the very first temptation in the Garden of Eden was to entice Eve with how pleasing the forbidden fruit looked. Forbidden fruit is always made to look pleasing to us. You may remember the illustration John Bunyan used in Pilgrim's Progress as uh, Christian and faithful were on their Christian pilgrimage. One of the places they had to go, they had to go through a place called Vanity Fair. Vanity Fair represented the temptations and pulls of the world that every person, Christians included, have to deal with. I want to read for you how Bunyan described what was available to them in Vanity Fair. It's quite a list. He said, therefore, at this fair are all such merchandises sold, all such merchandises sold as houses, lands, trades, places, honors, preferments, titles, countries, kingdoms, lust, pleasures, delights of all sorts as whores, brothels, wives, husbands, children, masters, servants, lives, blood, bodies, souls, silver, gold, pearls, precious stones, and whatnot. He's not done yet. And moreover, at this fair, there is at all times to be seen jugglings, cheats, games, plays, fools, apes, knaves, and rogues, and that of every kind. Here are to be seen too, and that for nothing, thefts, murders, adulteries, false swears, and that of a blood-red color. So, as they were walking through Vanity Fair, they had these things on either side of them. They had people calling out to them, trying to pull them in. And it says what they did is they looked, they would not look. They were looking ahead, straight ahead. And they put their fingers in their ears so they could not hear what was being, what they were being tempted to go after. And they also quoted a verse. It was this one. Turn away my eyes, Lord, from beholding vanity. That in itself is an example of what Paul told us earlier. He said, how can a young, or what uh, the psalmist says earlier, how can a young man keep in his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. In other words, they were taking scripture and applying it specifically to their situation to enable them to keep their way pure through this. Well, in our day, sometimes it feels like every day is vanity fair. I mean, we are probably even more bombarded with visual temptations than people at other times. I mean, we have television screens, computer screens, iPhone screens, gaming screens, and there is much that can be helpful in, in those screens, but we have to admit that there's much that can be sometimes described as vain or empty or worse. Well, this, I mean... I. I hate to say this, this verse has come to me oftentimes this week as I picked up my phone just to waste time. None of you guys ever do that. I mean, it's just right there. And so, but the psalmist recognizes that his problem is not only with his heart. His problem is with his eyes. His problem is with what he looks at, what he focuses on. So in recognition of his weakness and desperation, he asks the Lord, Turn away my eyes from looking at what I should not look at. 
He needs the Lord to be strong for him in this. So are we willing to pray this prayer? If so, that means that we are willing to consider what we look at with our eyes and see if it's actually worthy of our attention. Notice at the end of verse 37, he not only asked for help in turning away from vanity, he asked for the Lord to revive him in the ways of the Lord. So he's asking to be quickened, so to speak, to more life, to give him more energy, to give him more delight, more devotedness to the Lord and his ways. He's asking really that the, his, his delight in the things of the Lord would be more powerful than the enjoyment of the things that are empty and vain. Honestly, if we actually sincerely pray those verses, 36 and 37, we're going to grow in our faith. We will. We will grow in our faith if we pray those prayers. Finally, we pray for spiritual growth. As we pray for spiritual growth, we need to do this, number three. Pray that the Lord will enable us to stand firm in the faith, in his word, and continue to be lively in our embrace of righteousness. Verse 38 to 40 have a special emphasis on being firmly established in our faith, especially when there are things around threatening to tear down or deconstruct our faith. So look first at verse 38. It says, establish your word and your servant as that which produces reverence for you. So from this verse, I would suggest that when skepticism, so the word there is skepticism, when skepticism about the scriptures is common, trust the Lord to help you stand firm in the faith. The psalmist is asking the Lord to firmly establish him in his faith because there are threats to his faith all around him. Uh, if this is Daniel, you can understand all the things that were around him in Babylon. But there are things that can cause our faith to be uprooted. In the midst of those threats, the psalmist knows he has to look to the Lord. In this verse, it's a very God-centered verse. Notice what he says. He speaks of your word, your servant, as that which produces reverence for you. Everything is centered around the Lord in that one-verse prayer. Such a God-centered prayer to keep him from going off-center. There have always been times when those who profess to be Christian actually end up encouraging skepticism about the scriptures and therefore skepticism about the Christian faith. That's a major problem in our day as well. I know I've shared before, and I'm going to share again here, about my experience as a ministerial student in a Southern Baptist college in North Carolina between 1972 and 1976. The Southern Baptist denomination at that time really had been virtually taken over by those who had moved away from the belief that the scriptures were the authority were authoritative or they were infallible and sufficient it's really hard to believe but in the 70s that our denomination had a pro-abortion position all related to these things well i went to mars hill college to help prepare for ministry there were many ministry experiences that really did help but my professors were more of a hindrance than a help as best I can tell, and of course it's a long time ago, and I'm not as smart as a lot of people, and so I, maybe I misunderstood, but I think I'm pretty accurate here. 
I don't think I had any professor that believed Jesus was born of a virgin. I don't believe I had any professor that believed there was a literal hell or that there was a literal devil. Uh, I had professors who believed you really didn't have to believe Jesus was really and truly resurrected from the grave. It's okay if you don't, and you can still be a Christian. And at the base of it all was that you really can't trust the scriptures to be what they say they are. You really can't trust the scriptures to be the word, the word of God. As the young Christians, these things threw me. It's supposed to help you prepare for ministry, not make you go away from it. These men were much smarter than me. I didn't have answers to the things they were bringing up. I didn't know how to respond. Well, it came to a head one day when I was in my dorm room and I was reading the Bible. And it was a verse. I don't remember what it was right now. I was, I was reading the verse and I, reading it and I thought, I think I'd like to memorize this verse. I think this verse could be really helpful. And all this other stuff started flooding in. How do you know that's really the word of God? How do you know you're really memorizing something that's truly inspired by God? Maybe it's not. Maybe it's not. And I thought, I can't go with that. I can't live this way. I don't know the answers to the things, that they, the questions that they're throwing out at me, but I cannot go with this. So I threw it all out. I don't think I have any notes left from any of my professors at college. Little by little, I threw them all away. And by God's grace, he did end up giving me answers. Years down the road, little by little, I began to get those answers. And he did establish me in my faith, even in the midst of people who were trying to throw me off of my faith. They, were, they probably wouldn't say that, but in my mind, that's what they were doing. Those things happen, and they're happening a lot now. Most everybody here, you know people who are questioning their Christian faith, questioning if it's really real, if they really should continue to go on with it. We all know people like that. This would be a great prayer to pray for yourself because those struggles are there, but to pray for others. It is only as the Lord establishes the word of God to his servant that we can grow in our faith and grow in our reference of the Lord. Well, this theme is continued in verse 39. Turn away my reproach, which I dread, for your ordinances are good. So from this verse, I think we can see that we can see the need to trust the Lord to help you live in such a way that others are not turned against the Lord because of failure to honor his, God, his good ordinances. So the key here is what is the reproach that the psalmist dreads, the thing that would be shameful? What, what is it that he's thinking about? I think the reproach here is this, is that, is that the reproach would be that if something in my, in my life brought dishonor to the Lord and actually was one of the things that caused somebody else to fall away from the faith. That would be a shame to know that something I did, ways that I was living, actually were detrimental to somebody else continuing in their faith. I think that's the shame he's talking about, that he doesn't want that to happen. I mean, as Christians, we want our life to be positive, a positive testimony for the Lord. God's ordinances are good, like he says here. So we don't want to give 
reason for unbelievers to cause a cause to speak against the faith that we are holding to. But even though the Lord has given his people the desire to be a good witness, this verse recognizes that we don't always live up to that. We don't always do that. We sometimes fall to temptations. We sometimes make cho- choices that don't honor the Lord. We sometimes can act as if we're apathetic in our, in our Christian faith, maybe in our times of worship, whatever it might be. We can sometimes appear to be hypocritical when the way we live doesn't match up to what we say we believe. Those are very real problems that we all have to struggle with, and the psalmist recognizes that's something he has to deal with. So part of his prayer for his own spiritual growth is that the Lord would guard his life so that he will not bring reproach on the name of the Lord by the way he lives. The final verse of this stanza is verse 40. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me through your righteousness. The word behold here is a, it's just kind of a word, uh, kind of is a call to give special attention uh, to what's being said. And it's an appeal to the Lord to recognize that the psalmist is deeply serious about the things that he has been praying, the things that he's been bringing to the Lord. And he truly longs to know and understand and live out the precepts of God. He wants to honor God with his life, even though that there are many around him who are going the opposite direction. He has a genuine longing for the precepts of God, even though he has found in himself that the law of sin is very active. He knows that sometimes his heart inclines toward the wrong things. He knows that sometimes he gazes at things with his eyes that are vain and even sinful. But he has a genuine desire to be established in the word of God, even when others are trying to convince him otherwise. In light of his longing for righteousness and the temptations that exist, he asked for the second time for God to revive him. He is asking for God to quicken him so that he would have more lively desires for God's perfect righteousness. It's in these times of turning from sin and temptation that the psalmist is able to be refreshed by the presence of God. Quote on, the last quote on your outline, I think, ties in really to what's going on here. Charles Bridges says, Whatever be the pleasures of indulgence in sin, far greater is the ultimate enjoyment arising out of the mortification of it. The more, out of the mortification of it. Mortification of sin is a big word that means putting it to death. And that's a big part of what's going on in this stanza. Recognizing sin in our lives and regularly putting it to death is a big part of spiritual growth. And the prayers here are a help for us to do that. It's a key part of how the Lord revives us through his righteousness. He can even actually give us a cheerfulness of spirit as we rely more fully on his word. So we see from this psalm we need to regularly pray to the Lord that, he, that we would able to continue to grow in our Christian.